Well, this morning, we have the privilege, once again, of opening up God's Word together, and for the second week in a row, we're opening up to the book of Mark. El Evangelio según Marcos, capítulo 1, versículos 9 a 13. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. This is the first introduction that we actually get of Jesus. Last week was the prologue. It was, it was the sort of introduction to the introduction of Jesus. In the book of Mark, even though we gave a much more full uh, summary last week, if you weren't here with us last week, Simply put, the book of Mark is the shortest of the four gospel accounts. It's one of the three synoptics, the book of John uh, being the, the one which is not a synoptic. And Mark is unique among the synoptics and among the four gospels. As I mentioned, it's the shortest of them. It was the earliest written of them. But Mark progresses. It moves. Like we said last week, the word immediately appears 42 times as Mark progresses from one scene to the next and he spares all the unnecessary details to get his point across. We'll even see that word immediately for the first time today as Jesus goes directly from his baptism to his temptation in the wilderness. And Mark's point in all this is to help us to, uh, to find the, que- or the answer to the question that is the most important question you will ever ask, and in fact, the first question you should ask in every scenario your first question, which is, who is Jesus, and what has he done? As a Christian, we never, we never stop asking that question. It's never appropriate to, to lay that question to the side as though it's a non-essential question or, or as though we have sufficiently answered that question in our lives. Since every kingdom takes the shape of its king, Mark wants us to thoroughly understand the shape of who he introduced in verse 1, which is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And last week, in the prologue in verses 1 through 8, we saw that John the Baptist, who in another gospel Jesus identifies as the greatest man who ever lived, John the Baptist, John the Baptist he says, after me is one greater than me. In fact, so great is he, I'm not even worthy to stoop down to untie his sandal straps. Which is a task reserved for slaves in that culture. John saying, he is one so great that I'm not even worthy to be his slave. Here beginning in verse 9, in four short verses, Mark recounts two scenes which begin to lift the veil on who this greater one is. Mark begins to unfold just what he means by Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Mark begins to help us to answer who is Jesus. So here we go. With that, would you read along with me? In fact, not four verses, but five. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was out in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what, what a joy it is. What, what a privilege it is. What a, a sobering privilege it is to encounter Jesus. To be introduced, as it were, for the first time to Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Son of God, and to learn what that means. Lord, I pray that you would put away our presuppositions, that you would put away our assumptions that we know sufficiently what that means, that we would learn today, that we would come to know, that we'd be known by Jesus, that we would understand what you sent him to do and what he accomplished in obedience to you for us. Lord, teach us, change us, give us joy and give glory to yourself. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let me ask a really important question. Is God pleased with you? Is God pleased with you? How how would you answer that question? Again, like I just prayed, I want you to put away presuppositions. I want you to answer that question honestly. And even if you're not a Christian this morning, that's okay. We're here to encounter Jesus. But even if you're not a Christian, and maybe you're grappling in your heart with whether or not there even is a God, let's just say hypothetically, if there is a God, would he be pleased with the life that you've lived? And for most humans, this question is an uncomfortable one. Because it, it forces us to wade past our accomplishments and the things that we're proud of and the things that we would place on social media for others to see, it forces us to wade past those things and into the deeper, dark recesses of our hearts where the things that we're not quite so sure God would be pleased with live. The things that we're not quite so proud of. Again, and even if you're not a Christian, it's probably a fair assumption to say that if there is a God, he probably has a high standard, probably a very high standard. So, so let's, let's, let's lower the bar a bit. Let me ask you this question. Are you pleased with you? Are you pleased with yourself? Is your family pleased with you comprehensively? Are your friends or even the people who are watching you on social media from afar 
by consuming what you post on social media. Are they pleased with you? Do you care if they're pleased with you? And if I were to guess, I wouldn't be surprised if these questions make you even more comfortable, more uncomfortable than the first. Because, because against the fickle and often changing standards and expectations that you and, and others measure everything that is you by, you feel vulnerable and exposed, wondering, do I measure up? When we live our lives measuring ourselves against the standards that we and others hold for us, it's vulnerable. It's exhausting. It's wearisome. And I know some, if not all of you, are well acquainted with this weariness. These are such Vulnerable questions because they illuminate the shame that's crouching in the corner of your hearts. The regrets and the secrets that are desperately seeking a place to hide in your hearts. The failures, the poor choices, the shattered hopes and expectations that you and others had for your life. The impulsive words that you have said and you wish that you could take back. The selfish pursuits that you have gone down the road pursuing that have ended in a place that you never dreamed they would end in. All of those things, when you ask the question, are you pleased with you? Is God pleased with you? Are others pleased with you? We're exposed to those things and we become insecure and we doubt. Can't confidently answer yes to any of those. If you're uncomfortable, I, I'm, I'm sorry. But can I ask you to intentionally hold on to that discomfort for a, for a little bit longer? Because it's into that discomfort that this introduction of Jesus speaks. But before we even get to there, can I ask you one more favor and allow, allow me to risk making you just a little bit more uncomfortable. Because in this conversation of, of measuring up, of, of asking whether or not you please yourself and all others around you, there are two fundamental premises that we need to understand. Okay, If you're taking notes, two things we need to understand. One, your standing before God is all that matters. And if you lack the pleasure of God, it doesn't matter. It does not matter who else's standard you measure up to or don't measure up to. This is what the Apostle Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 14, verse 4. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. You hear what he's saying there? In other words, if... if each of us are ultimately accountable to, to our master, and God is the master of masters. He created us. He defined our purpose. He set our place in this world and determined how we should live within this world for our good. <laughs> Only if we please him does the pleasure and approval of others carry any weight. So the first premise, you're standing before God is all that matters. Secondly, 
Oh boy, and this is where it gets uncomfortable. Secondly, nobody has been able to earn the pleasure of God. Nobody has been able to earn the pleasure of God. God, God's standard is referred to in Scripture as His law. This is is His articulation of, of how to live before Him in this world for your good and for His glory. And it's not that, that God is, is, is fickle. It's not that, that he, he is a tyrant who has such a high standard. No, He is holy. He is perfectly without sin. And He, and he demands that we live before Him in holiness as well. And He placed Adam and Eve in the garden with the capacity to do so, yet they rebelled against Him. So did everyone sin. Deuteronomy 31, God promised His people incredible blessing if they kept this standard and punishment if they didn't. And James, 2, James chapter 2, verse 10 says that if anyone keeps the whole law but fails in one point, he's become guilty of the whole law. So Romans chapter 3, verse 10 concludes that there is none righteous, no, not, not one. Not one has been perfectly able to uphold God's standard of holiness. But, but, Romans 3.20 also says that for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There's some hope in that verse because, listen, in other words, God knew how sinful and rebellious we are. He knew that nobody could earn his pleasure by by keeping the law perfectly because he knew that nobody would. But he gave it so that we would have a knowledge of our sin, so that we would know that we have not measured up and wouldn't delude ourselves into thinking that we've earned his pleasure by some lower standard. Why? Why would it be important for us to know and have an awareness of our sin? Well, on one hand, so that no guilty person could argue their innocence before him. There's an absolute objective standard by which we are judged. But, on the other hand, he gives us his law that we might know our sinfulness before him (laughs) To give us hope that if God knew we aren't able to earn his pleasure through the law, then maybe, just maybe, he'd be gracious enough to make another way. That's the hope that that rings out of that verse. We are hopeless that God could ever be pleased with us because of our sin, and we are accountable for it. But this morning, we discover that if If this Jesus, God's Son, is a human like me, and and, and God is pleased in him and loves him, then maybe, just maybe, he could be pleased with me. If God is pleased with his Son, then maybe he could be pleased with me. This is is the, the hopeful possibility that we're confronted with in this passage. That this is what, what it suggests with this, this blinding glimmer of hope 
that maybe God could be pleased with me if He's pleased with Him. Don't need to understand why, why or how, but maybe. Is He the real deal who can eliminate your insecurity? Who can eliminate your fear before the judgment and assessment of God and others and even yourself? Well, let's find out. So this passage has two, two stories. Two stories that immediately follow one after the other. Those will serve as two points demonstrating, demonstrating who Jesus is according to these two stories. So, so the, the answer who, to who is Jesus based on these stories tell us if God could be pleased with him, maybe he could be pleased with us. And these two stories tell us why. The first point being that he is a son who would please God by his suffering. And the second one, that he's a son who would please God by his obedience. A son who would please God by his suffering. A son who would please God by his obedience. Jump into the first story, which is the baptism of Jesus. Now, put yourself at the, at the side of the Jordan River. The, John the Baptist has said that one greater than I is coming. And he makes some big claims about, about who he could or might be. And all of a sudden, just imagine, John goes, here he comes! He's coming! And every eye looks toward Jerusalem. The, the, the religious center of the world at that point. Or maybe, maybe even to Bethlehem, where the prophets had prophesied the Messiah would come from. But this guy comes walking from Nazareth. And, and, and if you've read your Bible, Nazareth is probably a pretty familiar city to you uh, by now. But, but back then, Nazareth was nowhere. It's like expecting the most impressive person you'll ever meet, and then going to Desert Edge, California, to meet them. I had never heard of Desert Edge, California before this morning. And if you've ever been to Desert Edge, I will buy you lunch today. It is a place where 3,500 people reside. It's in Riverside County, apparently. It's tiny. I've never heard of it. Most of us never had either. Nazareth was Desert Edge, California, but only 400 people lived there at the time when Jesus lived there. It wasn't ever mentioned in the Old Testament. It was nowheresville. It was obscure. And here comes Jesus walking toward John the Baptist, standing by the Jordan River, coming from Nazareth. And so while everybody's expecting him to come from, from Jerusalem with pomp and circumstance, this great one, who John said will not baptize with water, but instead will baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit, he comes to John to what? To be baptized by him. Uh, again, he, he's coming from obscurity, from this no-name town, and then he comes to be baptized by John? And while everybody is just on the cusp of writing him off, John immerses him in the water 
and then raises him up out from the water, and the skies tear open. That is, that is literally the, the, the Greek word that's it's in the text, and it's intentional. The skies tear open, and two things happen. One, miraculously, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, and again, this is a Trinitarian text, third person of the Trinity descends like a dove, not actually as a dove, not as a bird, but like a dove onto Jesus. Secondly, a voice thunders from heaven. The voice of God the Father. Once again, it's a thoroughly Trinitarian moment. You see, hear God the Father's voice. You see the Holy Spirit descending upon upon who? Well, God the Father tells us who. What does he say? He says, you, Jesus, are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. This is a tremendous statement. This is 13 words in the original Greek, but it has so much. I was just telling Jeff before the service, I I can't get through all the details of these short five verses because of all of the nuance and and the wondrous truth packed in these passages, but I'll try. So listen, this phrase that God the Father utters from skies torn open, it's a combination of two Old Testament verses that tell us loads about who Jesus is. Listen, the first phrase, you are my beloved son, is a quotation of Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And Psalm 2, 7 is a psalm where the kings of the earth conspire against God, and God declares that he will set up his king, and this king would be his own son. This is a fulfillment of actually Nathan's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, that there would be a descendant who would be his king whom he would call his own son. So, so Psalm 2-7 is, is a declaration of both deity, saying he is God's own son, literally, and kingship. That's why, that's why John the Baptist was saying he's great. This is that one. But the second half of this verse, talk about the revelation of Jesus in a way that nobody expected with you I am well pleased, is a direct quotation of Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, which is the account, the prophecy, or one of the numerous prophecies in Isaiah, of the suffering servant. Which tells of the servant who would come and suffer, live a life of suffering, and who in Isaiah 42.1, the prophet Isaiah says, quoting God, I delight in him. Further, Isaiah 42.1 says that this servant will have God's spirit upon him. So this scene, this scene is painting a picture. This, this, this statement that God the Father thunders from heaven after hundreds of years of silence mind you, in Israel, it paints this picture of Jesus 
as God's anointed king, the very son of God himself, God in the flesh, the great one indeed, yet a God king who's a servant, empowered by God's spirit. And it's his suffering servanthood that earns God's pleasure. Notice that. It's his identification of the, of the one in Isaiah 42.1 that earns God's pleasure. Jesus would please God by his suffering servanthood. And this servanthood is confirmed by his lowliness coming from Nazareth. It's confirmed by his baptism as he subjects himself to John's baptism. But also, listen, this is critical, Because baptism also signifies judgment before it signifies resurrection. Baptism is a symbol of of being being immersed down into the water, being, being immersed into death and then being raised up, cleansed into new life. Baptism before, it's a symbol of new life. It's a symbol of judgment. So Jesus subjects himself to this baptism from John, allows himself to be submerged which is a picture of the cross. Jesus' baptism points forward to his ultimate suffering on the cross, which is where, as we will find out, friends, Jesus bears the full pleasure of God. But before he bears that, he will bear the wrath of God and suffer like none had suffered before him. Friends, Jesus' Jesus' baptism and God's pronouncement, they confirm his deity. He is God's son. He is the king sent to reign, but the king who had come to serve, to assume the position of a lowly, suffering servant, going as low as to suffer on a cross, which his baptism foreshadowed. And this one pleased God. What a magnificent picture this is. But listen, okay, listen, for him to be worthy of God's pleasure, he had to prove he could measure up to God's standard. Okay, God doesn't, God doesn't give free passes and just say, yeah, I mean, I know that you've rebelled against me and you didn't really measure up to my standard, but, but I like you. <laughs> I like you, so I'm going to give you a free pass. No. Jesus had to demonstrate that he could live up to God's standard and be worthy of that pleasure. So the spirit who had just fallen on him drives him out into the wilderness. Verse verse 12, where he proves, point two, he is a son who pleased God by his obedience. He's a son who pleased God by his obedience. And, and, And if you're wondering where the rubber meets the road on this for you and your life, just wait. Remember, we're first asking the question, Who is Jesus? And in the wilderness, as the Spirit drove him out there, Jesus proved that he was worthy of the title, beloved son, and that he was able to live the life of which God was well pleased. But look look down at Mark's account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. It is two verses. You can even say it's one verse. If you've read Matthew and Luke's account, they're long There are tons of details. It's a whole story of of Satan and his interaction with Jesus and offers and temptations that Satan gives to him. And then Jesus 
quoting God's word and, and firmly rooting himself in, in, in what, what God has said to resist temptation. But Mark includes almost no details. As, it's almost as if to say to the reader, it's like he's saying, I'm not even going to give you the, the chance to think that this story is primarily about how you can resist temptation. Or, or, or that it's primarily about how you can see your own wilderness reflected in Jesus' wilderness and, and, and receive comfort in the midst of your wilderness. Said, no, no, no. I'm going to be so sparse in the details that there's only one question that you can ask of this, of this story. And what question is that? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What does this tell us about Jesus? And the first thing that this story tells us about Jesus, the first wonderful thing it tells us, is that Jesus fully identifies with us in our humanity. Again, if you're taking notes, write that down. Jesus fully identifies with us in our humanity. To the point of even being subjected to temptation like we are subjected to temptation. In fact, if you're a very careful reader, verses 12 to 13 give us hints of something astounding. And let, let's actually just read verses 12 and 13 again. Okay? And, and listen carefully. I want you to catch these details. The few details that Mark includes. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Every detail matters in that. And the hints that these give us tell us that this Son of God subjected himself to temptation just like previous sons of God. You say, what do you mean previous sons of God? John 3.16 says that Jesus is God's only begotten Son. Well, in Luke's genealogy of Jesus, he ends his genealogy with Adam. goes all the way back to the beginning, right? And he says, so-and-so was, was the son of so-and-so, and so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and so on and so forth, right? And he gets to Adam, and he says, the son of who? Son of God. Not in the same way that Jesus was the son of God, but in the sense that he was the first the first of the line of humanity, having no, no human father before him. He was the, the, the first human that, that God had created. Adam was given the task of tending and keeping and naming the animals in the paradise of Eden. And when Adam was subjected to temptation by, mind you, Satan just as Jesus was, directly, Adam failed. And he sinned. And his sin and his rebellion against God turned that paradise of Eden into a wilderness. And so the second Adam, the, the, the better Adam, entered the world to undo all that Adam did. And to do so, he entered into the wilderness where the animals had no longer remained under his dominion, but had become wild. The reflection of, of, of paradise lost, this wilderness being with the wild animals. And this second Adam 
the Son of God has come to undo what Adam did. But, but not only does this passage show Jesus as the second Adam, it shows him as the true Israel. In Exodus chapter 4.22, God calls Israel what? My firstborn son. His symbolic son. In Exodus chapter 20, he, he gives Israel a name. He calls them his people. He says, you are my own. I will be your God and you will be my people as, as a father is to a son. And so he says in Exodus 4.22, you are my firstborn son. And so it be, being delivered from the hands of the Egyptians, that they had come up, get this, out from the waters of the Red Sea and were driven into the wilderness. Does this sound familiar? For 40 years, this is Jesus in the, is in the wilderness for 40 days and were subjected to temptation. You see these parallels. And Israel, Israel failed miserably. And you, you actually can't find one moment where they failed and, and where, where God says, this is, this is when, when you lost the promise. It happened over and over and over and over in the wilderness. They complained and they grumbled and they rejected and they worshipped idols. And they failed to resist the temptation. If you want to read Numbers chapter 11 through 21, you'll find the painful recounting, recounting of the wilderness failures. So Jesus walked into the mirror image reflection of where Adam and Israel had failed. Okay. And interestingly, unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark doesn't explicitly tell us that Jesus succeeded where they failed. But you remember what we said last week. Mark, Mark is progressively revealing Jesus. So Mark instead progressively unfolds Jesus' success and, and, and Jesus' righteousness through the rest of the story. But let me let, me let you in on, a, on the secret. Jesus succeeded. He never once sinned. He succeeded in the wilderness for those 40 days and then he entered into the wilderness of fallen humanity for the rest of his life until he was crucified and never once sinned. Jesus succeeded where Adam and Israel and you and I failed. He's a better Adam. He's a better Israel. He came to keep God's law and not violate it at one single point and thus fully earn God's pleasure and the right to be called God's beloved son. That's what this wilderness experience is about. The first thing we learn from the story is that Jesus identifies with our humanity in full. And the second thing we, we learn is that he succeeded at every point where every one of us failed. That's what this story's about. It's not about how to resist temptation in your life. It's about how Jesus alone was able to resist temptation where you have failed. But here's the thing. Again, I told you, we'd get down to where the rubber meets the road eventually. Why should that give us any hope that we could earn God's pleasure? Great that Jesus did. The reason that gives us hope is because of what his baptism pointed forward to. Which, remember, is the cross. 
Because what would happen on that cross is that he would take our sin. He would take our failure. He would take our shame and take our guilt upon himself. You see, he could do that because he was fully man. Jesus was not part man and part something else. No, he was fully human, fully able to identify with us in every way, and thus fully able to stand in our place and receive the penalty that we should have deserved, receive the judgment that we should have deserved for our failure. But not only was he human, we also learned from God the Father's pronouncement in Jesus' baptism that Jesus is also fully God. So not part human and part God. Fully, 100% human. Fully, 100% God. And we're going to get much deeper into, into that teaching because it's one of the most glorious but complicated to understand realities and perhaps we may not ever fully understand it because we're, we're going into the deep end of theology in this. But as we go through the book of Mark, we'll, we'll explore that to much greater depth. But suffice it to say this morning that the fact that he is fully God means that, that he has the power and the authority to take our sin but also through his sacrifice on the cross to give us his perfect record and for, for him to give that perfect record to anyone who believes in him. It wasn't a one for one, one person dying for another person. Because he's God, he has the authority and the prerogative to die for all who would believe in him. If he was just a man, it would have been a nice notion. He's fully man. Able to take our failure on himself and pay the full price and as God to pay that full price for all who would believe in him with the authority to do so. Jesus, fully man, identifying with us in our humanity in every way, yet without sin, Fully God, possessing the power and the right to extend the pleasure that he has won from the Father to all who believe in his cross. Friends, this is the message of the gospel. This is no simple, this is no simple teaching. This is no simple solution. This is, this is the, the divinely orchestrated plan that, that, that God had planned from the beginning of time coming to pass, beginning to unfold in these two accounts. These two stories in Mark prove to us that the Son in whom the Father is well pleased had come to win the Father's pleasure for us. The Son in whom the Father was well pleased had come to win the Father's pleasure for us. That's who He is in this passage. That's who we need to see in this passage. So now that we have asked and answered the question, who is Jesus in this passage, now we ask, okay, what should I do? Now we ask that question, what should I do? What should I do with this knowledge of Jesus? Well, if you're not a Christian, okay, and, and I'm not assuming that everybody in this room is a Christian, just because you're here at church doesn't mean 
that you are a Christian. If you're not, know that Jesus identified with you in your humanity. Your response is to identify with him by faith in who he is and what he has done. One day, all things will be, will be revealed. 1 Corinthians 4.5 says that there will be a day when all is laid bare. All things are known. And he's talking about the judgment when God sees all things. When, when, when your dark corners and the deep recesses of your heart are exposed with nowhere to hide. If you are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 4-5 says, and this is remarkable, I, I think this is one of the most surprising verses in all of Scripture. It says, when all things are exposed, each one will receive his commendation. You fully expect to hear the word condemnation, right? When all things are exposed, each one will receive his condemnation. You are judged, you are judged, you are judged, you are judged, and rightfully so. But for those who are in Christ, each one will receive their commendation. Despite everything being laid bare, despite the dark corners of your heart being exposed, God will look on you and see that you have been united to the perfection of his son and say to you, this is my beloved son or daughter. With you I am well pleased. You're not a Christian. The call to you today is to identify yourself by faith in Jesus Christ. I'd love to talk to you about that today. If you have any doubt or insecurity about whether or not God is pleased with you, don't leave today without talking about that. If you are a Christian, I want to give you three applicational handholds. These, these would be great, great things to talk about over, over lunch uh, in, in small group the next time you get together with, with Christian brothers and friends, friends and, and fellowship. Three things, if you are a Christian. One, repent of living in guilt that you haven't pleased God. So, so if, if you have trusted in Christ and you still experience guilt, repent of living in that guilt. Listen, guilt and shame and fear are insidious weapons of Satan. Satan came and tempted Jesus in the wilderness, trying to, to tempt him with those very same things, in addition to others. But guilt and shame and fear, if, if, you've if you have identified with Christ by faith, God's pleasure in him is God's pleasure in you. There is no more guilt. He has covered your shame. He has eliminated fear of judgment. Yet when guilt and shame and fear creep back into our lives, they cause us to deny the power of the cross and say that maybe that wasn't enough. Maybe God really isn't pleased with me. Repent and receive God's pleasure in you in Christ. Secondly, repent of trying to please God. There are some of you in here who might be living a life trying to just stay in God's good graces or somebody else's good graces. 
The law wasn't given so that you could justify yourself by that, by it. Remember that. Romans 3.20. You weren't given the law so that you could justify yourself by it. It can't happen. You're already too far down the road. Every one of us are. You cannot please God apart from Christ. You cannot do it. I think if the Apostle Paul were speaking, he, he would say, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot. So stop trying. Stop wearying yourself with trying to gain God's approval and thinking that he, you haven't gained it in Christ. Because in Christ, God is pleased in you and your good works are an outflow of His pleasure in you, not the other way around. When you try and reverse that, by, by trying to cover your sins, by, by doing more good works, by, by hiding from your sins and not bringing them forth in confession, you're refusing the pleasure-purchasing power of the cross of Jesus Christ. You're once again robbing the cross of its power and denying it, and denying Jesus what he came to do. Repent of trying to please God. Thirdly, and finally, and we'll close on this, if this is you, repent of lowering the bar and trying to be pleasing by another standard, by a lower standard. Repent of lowering the bar, trying to be pleasing by a lower standard. Don't, don't make your standard for yourself your highest standard. Listen, self-esteem and the achievement of high self-esteem is not life's great aim. That is not what we're striving afterward. To, to, to make sure that, that we're good enough in our own eyes, that we approve of ourselves. No. Our standard, one, it's always going to be changing. It's always one that's inherently self-focused, and they're, therefore prideful. And it's a lower standard. But listen, also don't make the standards of others your highest standard either. Do you know what the Bible calls that? It calls that fear of man. Fear of what others might think of you. Living life as though their standard is one that really, really matters. The Bible says in the face of that temptation to fear man, <laughs> the Bible says, no, don't fear man. Fear the one who has the power not only over your life, but over your eternity. And it's saying, actually, fear that. Unless you're in Christ. Because in Christ, the fear has been cast out, and that very one now looks upon you as his beloved. It says, in you I'm well pleased. Your eternity is secure in my son. So whether or not you measure up to your standard or that of anyone else in Christ, God is well pleased with you. How freeing is that? There is one whose standard matters. And if you have identified with Christ by faith, verdict over you, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, and you I am well pleased. Friends, the Son in whom the Father is well pleased came to win the Father's pleasure in you. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, the fact that we are able to even address you as Father is evidence of who Jesus is and what he came to do. We pray to you as, as Father, not as, as one whom we're still fearing judgment from. No, that would be to deny the power of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We thank you that, that, that we serve a better Adam, a true and better Israel. We thank you that we serve one who has succeeded in every way where we failed and who has purchased your pleasure. Lord, I, I pray that, I pray for anybody here this morning struggling to believe that your smile rests upon them. Would you send them out today in the joy of knowing that Jesus has purchased your pleasure for them? It's in his name we pray. Amen.